This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that, plus members-only bonus episodes with extra clips and commentary. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the history of why we don't already have Medicare for All, just a handful of the overwhelming number of reasons why we need it, and the fight ahead to make it a reality. Clips today come from The Michael Brooks Show, The Zero Hour, The Katie Halper Show, Democracy Now!, Counterspin, The Majority Report, and The Ezra Klein Show. We have this broad, vague idea that obviously relative to Western Europe as an example, America does not have anywhere nearly as developed a universal social safety net system. And there's these kind of vague ideas, um, some of which are rigorous and make sense, some of which are kind of abstract and almost like national myths about why America can't have universal systems or why America doesn't have universal systems. But there's a very specific history with national health insurance that goes back to the 1940s and actually tells us a lot about not only why we don't have single payer, but how politics works today. Can you take us back then and explain to us that story moving forward from the 40s onward? Sure. Yeah. So I think that uh, basically every country arrives at whatever social systems it has, and that certainly includes healthcare, uh, through a you know unique set of historical circumstances that apply to uh, that country or a narrow set of countries. And in our case, I think that the most relevant part of the history starts uh, a little bit before World War II. We get the passage of a lot of New Deal programs, uh, a lot of, you know, Social Security being a big one. And uh, healthcare, I think, was strategically left out. I think that a lot of the people in the Roosevelt administration were somewhat concerned that if they pushed too far, too much, too soon, then everything would crumble. Uh, but there really is a decent amount of evidence that a lot of the people in FDR's administration did intend to include it later. Um, of course, then, you know, the war breaks out, everyone gets really distracted. And during the war, to facilitate uh, the war effort and production, uh, there's a wage freeze mm -hmm. so that uh, companies can still afford to, you know, create stuff for the war uh, and, you know, won't have to compete super, super hard for uh, inflated wages or labor laborers for, with inflated wages. And so one way that they find to get around this is uh, basically by offering benefits, benefits, including health insurance, which all of these uh, companies have popped up to offer uh, the private sector since there is no public sector. Uh, initially, you have a group of nonprofits who are the precursors to Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, that kind of have this community model that kind of start, you know, banding together different hospitals, different providers and selling uh, basically <clears throat> coverage for a subscription fee that would cover everyone from first dollar. Uh, and then those are undercut by a lot of for-profit firms. So, you know, your Aetna and some of the other early uh, for-profit guys who are able to undercut the nonprofits because they pick and choose their patients. Uh, so, you know, if the nonprofits have this more noble mission, the uh, Aetnas of the world are perfectly happy to only take 
uh, a really narrow set of patients. They're not taking the super old people. They're not taking the super sick people. And, you know, as such, the amount that they pay, and they also don't pay from the first dollar of care. Uh, they pay for catastrophes, but, you know, leave you on your own for a lot of it. Uh, but as such, they are obviously able to offer a lower price initially, which is attractive to employers who are trying to get their laborers covered, either to entice more workers or later on after the war to uh, convince people that you don't need to unionize at this shop because we're already offering you uh, some great benefits like this health insurance over here. Um, so basically, you know, by the end of the war, you have this situation wherein there's actually a pretty developed private health insurance system, uh, but people are still worried about the fact that it doesn't cover any everyone. It's, you know, sort of in this developmental stage. Prices are already going up. And so during the Truman administration, after the war, there's this big push toward a national health insurance program to really like resume some of the work that they started during the New Deal. It was put on hold during the war. Uh, but, you know, then there are these interest groups led by the AMA, the American Medical Association, which uh, really leads the fight against national health insurance uh, in the second half of the 1940s. And that's, of course, because they have a vested interest in uh, you know, being able to control their own profession, being able to keep their salaries high, uh, not having the government's nose in their jobs, not regulating them. Uh, they're interested in their professional prestige and all of these things. And so they uh, take up what is at the time uh, this almost unprecedented campaign to squash uh, a single payer system, to squash national health insurance. Uh, and so they enlist this uh, public relations group from uh, Northern California. They charge all of their members $25 a month, which basically creates this few million dollar coffer. And I think at the time, this was uh, one of, if not the most expensive public, like big lobbying effort uh, by an interest group that's ever been done in American history. And this is uh, also, it was a lobbying of, effort, but it was also a, a PR campaign. I mean, it's all the elements of yeah. the sort of like modern corporate astroturf that we see throughout Washington. I mean, it was a PR firm leveraged by, in this case, the AMA private interest group to run a two-front mm -hmm. strategy to lobby against the Truman National Health Insurance Plan inside the sort of corridors of, of political influence and power, but then also to create a whole national hysteria around what providing health insurance would mean. And a lot of the same propaganda we see today about rationing and all these other myths was cooked up in this campaign in the 1940s. Absolutely. I mean, you definitely see them, you know, fighting this fight on all fronts. They fight or they send, you know, different representatives to Washington to actually meet with legislators. Uh, they have like actual physicians in the AMA write to uh, the legislators that they see or the aides that they see. So they find out who all of these people in Washington, who their personal physicians are and get those physicians to reach out personally to uh, these, you know, influencers in Washington. Uh, they start taking out major ads in major newspapers. Uh, the phrase socialized medicine gets kicked around a ton. Uh, you start to see a lot of red baiting, uh, mm -hmm. particularly, you know, around when the Soviet Union gets uh, the bomb. You know, I mean, you just see 
uh, a lot of very consciously uh, created myths and talking points. And sure enough, um, by the end of the 1940s, the idea is effectively squashed and isn't resurrected again for, you know, well over a decade, really. I look at a lot of how, I mean, how our patients are caught in the mess of all of this. Because right now we have a giant, like, it's the worst game of Texas Hold'em you've ever seen played. Where the doctor or the hospital will tell the insurance industry, this is how much we're charging for this particular service. The industry will look at that and say, I'm going to see whether you paid this lesser amount. And then the hospital turns around and finds the next person and says, well, we didn't get what we wanted on the last bill, so now we have to upcharge this next person. And around and around and around it goes, and it's always the patient who is left with the bills. And to me, I think that we have created the system where we tell ourselves that, oh, when a patient sees this bill, it will change their behavior. And what we're actually finding is that patients are avoiding health care because they right. are worried about the financial cost. And to me, that isn't a smart health decision. It's a barely hanging in their financial decision. And to me, I feel like, again, if we as physicians went into this, into this work with the, with the purpose of helping people when they need help, then we shouldn't be using bills as a blocking mechanism to people who want to see a doctor when they need one. Absolutely. And they absolutely are a blocking mechanism. You know, this mythology, and it is a mythology, that you can make smart consumers Mm -hmm. out of patients. We, by definition, as patients, we do not have medical training. Right. So it is not capable for us to, we don't have the capacity to do that, one. Two, the information is not available to us, which I I do know economics, and uh, markets are supposed to function on transparency and information. We don't have the information. I I had a minor surgery a few months ago, and um, I'm not capable. The only thing the website of the insurance company told me is to ask the doctor if there was a cheaper alternative available. And really, when someone's in pain, you want to tell, no, I don't. And by the way, as an informed, you know, person with background in health finance and economics, I could not find out how much I was going to pay. Right. I didn't oh, yeah. know what my, right. you know, and it turned out to be a lot more than the average American can afford. Right. Uh, the average American, more than half of Americans surveyed, roughly half, so that they didn't have $400 for an American. I'm so glad you brought up this $400 yeah. because my medical bill, my portion of that surgery fee, and I was having trouble, you know, moving around, mm-hmm. was multiples of that. Right. I mean, so the the $400 amount, I, I mean, I find this amount fascinating just because to me, it's one of the most unspoken pieces of the modern American economy that we have almost half of this country looks at a $400 expense for a personal emergency, a medical emergency, what have you, and they don't know where they're going to get the $400. We all have heard the stories about those ridiculous medical bills of $9,000, $10,000. But to me, it's like, you know, like that, you know, if when $400 is enough of a threat, then what what are we trying to d- dissuade people from and how do we not look at our our health our healthcare system and ask why aren't we doing better 
Because, I mean, it, the $400, my family was recently faced with that when my child was born last October. They sent us a bill and, I mean, you know, we have good family insurance and we, my wife and I have the kinds of incomes that we can look at $400, we can go to the website, pay it right. and not think about it. But to me, like, it's actually something that we have to come back to and ask, what is that $400 about? I already paid the insurance industry with a fraction of my income. My wife, I mean, you know, contributed. So we've already paid the insurance industry. You know, we've already given, right. we've, we've put our skin in the game, you know, to the insurance industry. Well, the 400, but you know what the $400 about. The $400, first of all, 400 here, 400 there. It's pretty soon you're talking real money. But more importantly, the 400 is, to, as you've rightfully said, is to discourage people from getting medical care so that insurance companies can collect premiums right. and not pay for care. And so, but which is the, the business most fascinating model. circumstances to yeah. dissuade somebody from? This is a child who's been born. Right. What exactly are you trying to dissuade my wife and I from doing? From not using the hospital to give birth? To not what monitor my baby as she's, you know, like struggling to keep weight on her bones? Like, what exactly are we trying to dissuade my family from with this $400? And to me, isn't it just that we should be focused on welcoming a new child to our family and making sure that my wife is healthy, that the baby is healthy? And shouldn't those be our top priorities? Of course. And to me, I I look at this $400 in the hands of – like I look at that bill in the hands of any of my other patients – who live in Southeast DC, who are struggling to, you know, to make ends meet. And I know that that $400 is not going to be an easy bill for them to carry. And to me, a just healthcare system does not do that to anybody, no matter what their income is. Discussion with Natalie Shore about a piece that she wrote for Jacobin called The Feminist Case for Single Payer. Um, what made you write that article? Uh, well, I think that in general, uh, people don't necessarily think about uh, all of the other social implications of a policy like this and how it can improve the lives of a lot of people that we would consider marginalized in our society. And uh, the truth is that robust social democratic entitlement programs are uh, particularly good for women. Uh, When we have a program, we have an entire welfare structure in the United States that's largely privatized and accessed through employment. Uh, You know, that's really difficult for women because we don't have an accompanying uh, program that provides child care, elder care, uh, that provides, you know, maternity leave, maternity care. Um, And so, that means that women disproportionately seek out uh, freelance employment, part-time employment, and these often don't uh, confer the sort of benefits that we would associate with a welfare state. Uh, they're also often insured by uh, their spouses or fathers as dependents, which makes uh, makes a situation so that they have less control in those relationships than they should. Uh, and that all of these things in combination uh, are really punitive uh, for women. And uh, sure enough, the World Economic Forum each year puts together a list of uh, the best countries for gender inequality. And the top three right now are Iceland, Norway, and Finland, all of which have uh, publicly run healthcare programs. Mm-hmm. Um, 
National Health Service and one, I believe, in which there's a single government payer. So, you know, there's data that bears this out. uh, And it's pretty clear that, you know, programs that socialize a lot of the care roles that disproportionately fall to women and doesn't commodify their health care, which on average they use more than men, uh, that this helps women have more agency in their lives overall. So you're saying that um, single payer is not just a, a white male privilege fantasy? Yeah, no. Um, you know, we're we're not just advocating this to seem cool and catch boys. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, we I've talked about this a lot, but this idea that, you know, that, that anyone saying um, this is going to get rid of sexism, get rid of racism. But the truth is, these things do help do help with those issues. I mean, as you as you demonstrate in this in this piece on gender. Yeah, I mean, of course, and no one would argue that, you know, universal health care will end sexism or racism. Right. Uh, you know, the the it, it does, I think, uh, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't change everything overnight. And there are still plenty of other issues uh, that affect people's lives outside of that. But it does help ameliorate some of the harms that are leveraged against marginalized people because of racism and sexism. Uh, you know, I mean, largely because of sexism, I think, you know, I think that you could make a pretty clear case for uh, the fact that care roles are so privatized and that we don't socialize them. I think that that's, you know, an inherently sexist thing. And so, right. you know, if you're an American, then sexism isn't just people having a bad attitude about you because you're a woman and that they need to like educate themselves and think about it. It's also because institutional power uh, acts in such a way that it affects my life and, you know, materially affects my life and that there are actual outcomes associated with that uh, that aren't just about, you know, feelings or how many memes you read that make you woker. You know, I mean, I think that uh, states that socialize uh, at least some domestic duties that fall disproportionately to women, states that uh, are able to produce legislation that allows uh, or that forbids my body from being more commodified than a man's. You know, I mean, women use more health care on average, uh, particularly when they're not ill. Uh, You know, people talk about the sick being the ones who use health care. I mean, of course, that's not always the case. It's also the pregnant or mm. the, you know, uterus havers um, right. who are, you know, disproportionately women. Mm. And, uh, you know, when you have health care that isn't free from the point of service, you're going to be shifting costs onto people who use it more, who are more often women. We also live a lot longer than men on average. Uh, and those years are when healthcare is the most expensive. And those people probably have access to Medicare, but uh, they're still going to face a lot of cost burdens. Um, and so all of these things are issues that affect women pretty profoundly. And um, in Denmark, it, mother's wages are about 40% of men's overall, I believe. And, you know, in the United States, it's around 27, 28%. Mm. These things make a huge difference. Yeah. I mean, just think about mammograms, um, uh, pap smears, all these things that are life saving. Yeah. I mean, we just have a lot going on. You know, I mean, we've got to <laughs> we've got to get in there for maintenance a lot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, yeah. And like not not only so it's not only the healthcare issue, which is obviously a, a lot of it. We also have no 
uh, maternity leave. We have no, uh, for the most part, no public uh, child care. Mm -hmm. You have this situation wherein women make less. uh, And, you know, when these things are privatized, they have to Presumably, you know, if they want to work at a job that does confer health benefits, that means that they have to pay for childcare, which comes out of an already lower salary on average. Mm-hmm. If they want to take a more flexible job or cut back on hours so that they don't have to pay for childcare so that they can be with their kids more, oops, whoops, then you don't get health coverage. And, mm. you know, if you happen to have a low enough medic, uh, income to qualify for Medicaid, uh, you know, that's an awfully low income. Uh, You know, I mean, it's 130% of the federal poverty line, which uh, certainly doesn't encapsulate all people who are poor or struggling. Um, You know, maybe you have access to Medicaid if you're in a state that expanded it, or, you know, if you're on the Obamacare exchanges, those plans tend to be expensive, cost less, have massive deductibles. Uh, So however you slice it, women are disproportionately suffering in a system that uh, basically has no welfare state, or at least no public welfare state. Our welfare state is largely uh, conferred by private employment. Right. So, yeah, the, the the irony is that if you care about sexism, inequality, uh, it's, 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 this is not a distraction. This is part of uh, a way that you deal with that. And, again, it's a very dishonest, weird idea that, because something doesn't 100% get rid of something, it's not it's not worth pursuing. I mean, no policies ever 100% get rid of things. But the people who are saying, who are kind of dismissing single payer would not dismiss Lily uh, Ledbetter. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, I think that that's really important. And I think in general, uh, you know, to whatever degree social democracy is associated with Bernie Sanders in our current American context, or, you know, Medicare for all is certainly associated with Sanders. Uh, I think that a lot of the people, um, you know, especially on Twitter who are outspoken about it, a lot of the people who are against those things uh, tended to be very pro-Hillary Clinton for um, largely feminist reasons. You know, these are people that uh, think about gender issues a lot and are passionate about them. And I think, you know, in most cases, that's in good faith, even though I have political disagreements with these people. Uh, I think that there was not... Uh, sufficient consideration about what feminism means when it comes to healthcare. Uh, not enough discussion about you know what what social democracy means for women's lives versus you know scant means testing and you know a few extra tax credits. Those are completely different. And if you want women to have full lives, if you want them to have as much agency over their lives as possible, you have to support something like this. I don't think that there's an alternative. Today's episode is sponsored by Blinkist, the app that's here to help you read more books than you thought possible, or at least get the core insights out of them. Just as I curate and distill the most important points about political issues, Blinkist does that for thousands of nonfiction books, condensing them down into just 15 minutes for you to read or listen to his audiobooks. Eight million busy people who want to get the main points out of books quickly are already using Blinkist's massive and growing library, which includes self-help, business, health, history, and of course, politics. 
reading or listening to blinks of books isn't like reading an abridged book. Rather, it's, it's more like having a friend spend 15 minutes giving you a really detailed overview of a book with plenty of specific points and highlights and key conclusions of the book fully explained. A book on Blinkist I recommend is The Filter Bubble from Eli Pariser. It's one of the first books that began to look into the darker side of the algorithmically controlled internet that keeps us in our own information bubbles and actually fosters extremism. If you want to check out Blinkist for yourself for a limited time, they have a special offer for our listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial. And of course, you can cancel anytime. That's Blinkist.com slash best. More than 100 Democratic lawmakers are co-sponsoring a new House bill to dramatically revamp health care in the United States by creating a Medicare for all system funded by the federal government. This comes at a time when as many as 30 million Americans have no health insurance and tens of millions more are either underinsured or struggling to pay their health insurance premiums. Democratic Congress member Pramila Jayapal of Washington announced the bill last week. It is time to ensure that health care is a right and not a privilege guaranteed to every person in our country. It is time for Medicare for all. Is this a bold and ambitious plan? Damn straight it is. Because it has to be. The scale of our health care crisis is enormous, and our plan has to tackle the deep sickness within our for-profit system. Here's the thing. If we can end slavery, if we can give women the right to vote, if we can send a man to the moon, then God, we can do universal health care for every American. Congress member Jayapal's bill would expand Medicare to include dental, vision and long term care while making the federally run health program available to all Americans. It would eliminate health insurance premiums, co-payments and deductibles while changing how health care providers are paid. Robert Weissman, president of Public Citizen, says the legislation would eliminate nearly $500 billion in waste spent annually on bureaucracy, inefficiency and excessive corporate profits. Political observers say the bill is largely symbolic, given the Republican-held Senate and White House, but will likely play a major role in the 2020 presidential race. Well, for more, we're joined by Congressmember Pramila Jayapal of Washington State. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Congressmember Jayapal. So let me ask you the question. Um, usually people will say— uh, how much does this plan cost and who's going to pay for it? I'll turn it around a bit and ask you, how much does the current system cost? Who pays for it? And then how is this system going to be funded? And that's why I love Democracy Now!, because you are about making sure we get the truth out to people. Uh, thank you, Amy, for the question. Our health care system today costs 18 percent of our GDP. In 10 years, we're going to be spending $50 trillion on our current health care system. And here's the thing. It's not like we're spending all this money and we have better outcomes than the rest of the world. The United States is last among all of our peers in infant mortality rates, in uh, maternity, uh, maternity mortality rates. We are last in terms of our life expectancy. We have the lowest life expectancy. And so here we are, the richest country in the world, and we are unable to provide health care for everybody at, ha you know, uh, right now we pay double what other 
other industrialized countries pay for their health care. So my plan says let's take the existing very successful Medicare system that already exists for seniors. Let's expand the kind of coverage that it offers, because that's the biggest complaint about Medicare is it doesn't cover things like dental, vision, uh, mental health, substance abuse, some of those critical pieces. And then let's extend it to everyone in the country. Same doctors and hospitals, but you would actually be able to choose and not be limited by insurance companies that say this hospital is in network, that hospital is out of network, those kinds of issues. And you won't have to have five different insurance plans. So what we do is we say the government is going to pay for the, for, for all of this. And in the end, we want to make sure we're containing the cost. So we change the way that hospitals are paid. We take on pharmaceutical drug pricing because that is a huge issue. We negotiate now. We allow the Medicare system to negotiate just as the VA does. And we, for the first time, include long-term services and supports, which is very important for our uh, community that has disabilities and our elders who simply cannot afford to live with dignity. Well, Congress member, right now, most uh, uh, Americans who do have health insurance, uh, their health insurance is paid for either by the premiums they pay out of their, their paychecks every week or that their employers pay, sometimes a combination of both. How would the funding of the system uh, change under, uh, under uh, Medicare for All? Right. So exactly. I mean, right now, the federal government already pays for about two thirds of the total health care costs because we have Medicaid and Medicare, which are already part of the federal system. Um, the rest of it is either people who have nothing or people who are covered by employer health care. What we are saying is that uh, there's there's about half, it's about $600 billion that employers are paying for their health care, uh, for their health care for their employees. That money, just a portion of that, could come towards the single-payer system because these for-profit insurance companies are continuing to hike up premiums, not only for families, but also for the employers. So enormous amounts of waste that are going towards a for-profit insurance system that is more interested in their profit than patients. In addition to that, we'll need a little bit more money, and we think that's very doable by, uh, by you know, putting a wealth tax on the wealthiest. There are a number of ways to pay that last little bit that would be required. And in the end, we would have comprehensive care that really would serve every single American, and we would save, with my Medicare for All plan, uh, at least— uh, $2 trillion over the next 10 years. So uh, this is this is a big plan. It's an important plan. And really, it's about saying healthcare is a human right. Um, it needs to be available to everybody, not just to the wealthiest. Because as you said, 30 million, un uh, 30 million Americans who are uninsured, and then on top of that, at least 40 million who are underinsured, can't pay their premiums, don't get the care they need. One in five Americans that literally does not take their pharmaceutical drugs that they are prescribed because they can't afford them. Uh, let me go to Alex Azar, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, speaking at CPAC, not quite as long as Trump did for over two hours, but CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. He was asked about Medicare for all. The threat is a, an immediate and complete government takeover of health care. They're at least being transparent this time about what they're about. You know, that also it's going to violate the commitment that we have made to our seniors in the Medicare program. 
because when you put all of these other Americans into the Medicare program, you're going to have the best doctors and the best hospitals are going to jump out of that program because they'll be paid under market rates and it'll be just like Europe and other socialist systems where you'd have to create a two-tier system of health care and to get quality care, you'll end up going outside the system if you've got the money to do so. That's Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar. Uh, Congressmember Jayapal, your response to that? Well, Alex Azar and Seema Varma uh, are industry front people. They are interested in preserving the system as it is so that insurance companies and pharmaceutical drug companies can continue to make profits while people die. What we know is that the Medicare system can be expanded to everybody and that in the end, we can take out the waste, the administrative waste of the insurance companies. I mean, think about this, Amy. You know, the United Health CEO is making $82 million in, in take-home salary, profit. Um, all of these CEOs are making enormous amounts of money, and pharmaceutical drugs and simple procedures cost so much more in the United States than anywhere else. And so they have to try to scare people into thinking that somehow this system is going to hurt the people that are in the existing system, which we really know is not the case. We're just expanding the existing system to cover everybody. But most importantly, we're going to keep costs down. So this is about coverage, but it's also about cost. Why is is it that the Medicare system pays 80 percent more for prescription drugs than the VA? It's because the pharmaceutical industry, when this provision was up for Medicare to be able to negotiate for uh, lower, you know, lower drug prices, um, the pharmaceutical industry put over $100 million into lobbying um, the federal government to make sure that that could never happen. So basic things like negotiating for prescription drug prices, making sure that hospitals are paid. We use what's called a global budgeting model in this bill, um, making sure that hospitals are paid. By the way, this is a system that most industrialized countries use, and Maryland has just started to use with some very effective results. So cost containment, universal coverage. If you're sick, go to the doctor. We want you to go when you start to get sick, not when you're so sick that you have to go to the emergency room and it costs us so much more. Physicians are with us. Largest labor backing that we've ever had in the history of this bill. And uh, it is making, I think it's making a real difference for people to know that we are ready to fight the industry lobby that's out there that Alex Azar and others want to, uh, you know, continue to support. The March 11th Washington Post headline told readers that the Medicare for All bill, recently introduced by Washington Representative Pramila Jayapal, quote, reflects influence of hardline progressive groups, close quote. Not quite a hit piece, but something very like it. The article said a slew of groups further to the left shaped the bill which would upend health coverage for tens of millions of Americans and cost many times more than the ACA, which is why the Post claims, quote, to some progressives, this is a step or steps too far, 
close quote. Words like upend and drastically do their work. And at one point, advocates on the left are counterposed with most health policy experts. Supporters of the Jayapal bill insist there's a groundswell of grassroots enthusiasm for overhauling the country's health care, the piece says, without reference to any of various polls that would indicate precisely that. The thing is, public support for a fundamental change in the way we do health care persists, despite years of this sort of elite media treatment. Perhaps because for most Americans, health care is not a partisan debate, but a crisis. Joining us now to talk about how Medicare for All would respond to that crisis is Diane Archer, founder and former president of the Medicare Rights Center. She is president of Just Care USA. She joins us now by phone from here in New York. Welcome to Counterspin, Diane Archer. Glad to be here. Well, can we start with just some basic information on Jayapal and more than 100 co-sponsors Medicare for All Act? How, for instance, does it differ or is it different from the proposal Senator Bernie Sanders put forward last year? It's quite similar to the Bernie Sanders bill. It is Medicare that we have today only improved and expanded to everyone. And it's improved by giving people vision, hearing, dental, which is in the Sanders bill, as well as home and community-based care and nursing home care, which is at the moment not included in the Sanders bill. But otherwise, it's very much the same. Well, we know that the major theme of much media coverage has been, how would we pay for it? And people have pointed out a number of problems with that framing, including its selective use. But it also reads like half a ball score, you know, Yankees three, because you're not hearing compared to what? What, What's wrong with that way of putting things? Well, a lot. Uh, We already spend more than Medicare for all would cost us, right? We already pay too much for our health care. We pay twice as much per person as people in other wealthy countries. Our system is incredibly inefficient. There is hundreds of millions of dollars in administrative waste because of our commercial health insurance system, a lot of bureaucracy and profits that uh, Medicare for all takes out of our system. And there's a lot of excessive pricing. Pharmaceuticals in particular cost twice as much here as they do in other countries. So just taking out the administrative waste and the waste excessive drug prices will save us so much money that even by conservative estimate, Medicare for all will cost us $2 trillion less over a 10-year period covering everyone and expanding benefits, and, I should add, allowing people to see the doctors they want to see and use the hospitals they want to use anywhere in the country. When it's presented as, well, we're going to transfer the cost of health care to the federal government, for a lot of people that just means, well, my taxes are going to go up, and so that's going to end up costing me more. But the, the math you're doing takes that into account as well. Today, working people pay a bunch of money in premiums and out-of-pocket for their commercial health insurance, as do their employers. And that money would go, instead of to a commercial insurer, 
to the federal government. Only it would be a little less than what, on average, people are paying. Businesses would save and individuals would save. So instead of the money going to the commercial insurer, it would go to the federal government. It's that simple. Well, the Washington Post, that piece I was citing, says that the Jayapal bill would overhaul the system so dramatically that summoning broad public support seems like a tall order. We can address that separately, but their point is that's a big reason that some groups are proposing more modest coverage expansions, such as adding a Medicare-type public option plan to the marketplaces. What is the problem with what is presenting itself here and elsewhere as cooler heads prevailing, a a more pragmatic approach? I would argue that Medicare for some, as I call it, allowing some people to buy into some version of Medicare is less pragmatic. We have a broken healthcare system, and we have two huge problems we need to address. We need to rein in the excessive costs we're paying for our healthcare, and we have to make sure that everybody in America can get the health care they need at a price they can afford. And Medicare for some does not address either of those two huge problems. Medicare for all, in fact, does. It reigns in costs and it guarantees everybody in America health insurance. So Medicare for some is going to do very little to help the 29 million uninsured and the tens of millions more who are underinsured be able to afford their health care. Yeah, it's not as though because it's a half measure, it would deliver half the benefit. But also, in reality, I would think that half measures really aren't, they aren't easier sells politically. I think it's mainly pundits who think that the center of the road and, you know, don't really disrupt anything, that that's always going to be the most persuasive argument to people. We also know from the studies that we have a majority of Republicans as well as Democrats who support Medicare for all. And the more they understand about Medicare for all, it seems the more they support it, right? The more they know that it involves the elimination of premiums and deductibles and coinsurance, that it adds important benefits that most people don't have today, like vision, hearing, dental, and long-term care. The more they see that it guarantees health care as a human right, the more support we have for it. And so I think a lot of this is helping people to understand what Medicare for All will do for them and to understand as well that our commercial health care system will never be something that they can count on for affordable health care. Well, how can people get involved? I mean, we have legislation now to look at. Are there other things that folks can do to to make themselves heard on this issue? Always lots of things. Most importantly, they should be reaching out to their members of Congress. They should be asking for meetings, actually, with their representatives in Congress and telling them and sharing their stories with them about their struggles to get decent, affordable health care under our current system. It's broken, and they know it, and we all feel it, and it's unjust, and there is an easy solution. The infrastructure is in place to expand Medicare to everyone. We know Medicare works. It's tried and true. People love it. We just now have to move our politicians to hear us and to do right by us. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed, which can help you take the coloring of your hair to the next level. For decades, women have had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or the time and expense of a salon, but now you can get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than 25 bucks. Self-image is a genuinely important thing, so it is no surprise that many Madison Reed clients have commented how their new hair color has improved their lives. Madison Reed delivers gray, covering, game-changing color that you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. Women love the results, gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. And what makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous, multi-tonal shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best of the left listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com and use the code LEFT. Going back briefly, touch on this, to our conversation about Center for American Progress. This is a piece that came out in Politico on the 10th. The establishment looks to crush liberals on Medicare for all and it outlines how a group of lobbyists and other and industry uh, people from the insurance industry and HMOs are getting ready to fund a massive AstroTurf effort to destroy Medicare for all. All of these companies, of course, represent the parasitic self-dealing industries that profit off of the immoral and inefficient healthcare system we have and profit off of the deaths and suffering of millions of Americans. And they are staffing up with Obama and Clinton alums to, uh, as I say, to run a campaign to destroy the possibility of Medicare for all. America's health insurance plans and Blue Cross Blue Shield Association more than a dozen groups, this is now quoting from uh, Politico, more than a dozen groups intended to press their point next year through the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future, a vehicle to combat expanding government role in healthcare. America's Health Insurance Plans and Blue Cross Blue Shield Association helped found the coalition alongside the Federation of American Hospitals, the big lobby pharma CNA, pharma and the America Medical, American Medical Association. If you go back to the history of the uh, propaganda campaigns against uh, going back to the FDR and Truman, these were the interest groups which helped destroy America having a national healthcare system like every other industrialized country. The partnership has received support from Lauren Crawford Schaefer, a veteran of the Obama administration's Health and Human Services Department, and Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, who's running its operations out of the lobbying shop Forbes Tate Partners. We believe all Americans deserve access to affordable, high-quality care, but a one-size-fits-all government-controlled system like Medicare for All isn't the answer, Schaefer said. Uh Note the word access. This is a major concern with Beto O'Rourke. This is why people are criticizing him. Beto has not come out clearly for Medicare for all. And he uses terms like access. Access doesn't mean a goddamn thing. Everybody theoretically has access to everything. A right, a hundred percent no bullshit delivery is what Medicare for all does. 
Former top Obama aide Eric Smith has been involved in running communications for the partnership, though he told Politico his relationship with the coalition was ending in the next few weeks. Now, basically, look, this group is going to harness, and there's a long history of corporate groups staffing up lobbying shops with uh, people who are veterans of Democrat campaigns. These are the people who actually are most effective in developing the, the talking points to kill important things, whether it's labor union organizing, whether it's net neutrality, and now most importantly with Medicare for All. Any consulting firm that gets staffed up on a 2020 campaign that has people who have been involved in these efforts should immediately be shunned. That's the problem out of the gate. If you're staffing up saying that you're a progressive with people that are going to run propaganda to destroy the most important legislative push in the United States right now, Medicare for all, then you should immediately fire that consulting firm. There should be a blacklist on any Democratic consultants that work on these efforts. Uh, or you should publicly announce that you're running a corporate right-wing campaign and you value the profits of a parasitical industry more than American lives. So when I talk to people in like European systems that have some kind of minimal copay, like the thing they will say is like, we actually do want people just to think like a little bit before going to the doctor, not the people who can't afford it. will have exemptions for the low income, but like for, I don't know, someone who's decently well off or even like up to Bill Gates, like they should at least think before using the doctor. Is there any value to that? Or it sounds well, like here's the thing about really? the United States. We have been thinking about that for a very long time. That is the only thing Americans have been thinking about for a very long time. So we just don't have the same problem that European countries may have. I still think it, even on your point, the research sort of, I think the research overwhelms the other direction, even if you take that consideration into account. People do nothing but think about healthcare costs in this country. They wake up in the morning wondering if they're going to be able to put food on their table or if they should use that money to buy prescription drugs. They wake up in the morning wondering if they should drive to Canada to get their drugs. They wake up in the morning wondering how they're going to take care of their sick person uh, because that person doesn't have healthcare. So, I mean, that is all people have been thinking about. We want people to contribute their best selves. We want them to be healthy. That is an investment in our economy and it's an investment really in in who we are as a country. Do you see any role for private health insurance in the healthcare system you're envisioning? Well, our plan would not use private health insurance, and it would be a comprehensive set of benefits, and everybody would be covered. And just like in Medicare, we, you know, we say no duplicative care, right? No duplicative coverage. But sure, if private insurance companies want to, you know, provide plans for cosmetic surgery or some other thing that's a wraparound benefit, you know, some super duper luxury plan. There's not much left though, because you There's guys not much have most of Because that. that's how it should be. Um, I really believe that's how it should be. Um, and, you know, we, 
uh, we believe that the private insurance company will adjust and they will find things to offer to people. And there may be some employers who say, you know, instead of the, um, uh, X kind of glass glasses, we're going to give you the 3D super fantastic where you can listen to everybody as you, as you look, uh, glasses. That's fine. They can do that. Okay. <laughs> what about duplicative insurance? Like I know if you look at, the Australian system, you know, they let you buy a plan that essentially competes against the government plan, gets you into certain private hospitals, private room, faster wait times. It sounds like that's not something no, you would envision. No, absolutely not, because it really does create a two-tiered system. And you see it not just uh, in in Australia, you're, you see it in Germany, some of the things that are coming out of Germany, where essentially, if you have a plan that says, hey, if you're wealthy, you can buy better access, then you will create that situation where people can buy better access. We don't want that. I think if you make $500,000, or you make $50,000, you should have access to the same health care. Congress members shouldn't have better health care access than workers. CEOs should not have better health care access than the average American. Now, that should just be a principle, right? If healthcare is a human right, then what gives us the right to say, it's a human right, but we're going to give you sort of the, the lowest possible plan that you can have if you're poor. No, if you're if you're poor, if you're a working family, if you're middle class, or if you're rich, let's all have the same plan for everybody. It, it is what the majority, there are some outlier countries, but it is what the majority of countries, major industrialized countries do. Mm-hmm. It reminds me, um, oh, in this great book, T.R. Reid wrote about different healthcare systems. He said about Canada's healthcare system, that Canadians are fine waiting in line as long as like the rich Canadians and the poor Canadians like all have to wait. It's about equity. I mean, listen, health equity is a huge issue in this country. You see it in the statistics. Um, It's got to be built into our structure. That equity has to be built into our structure. And the best way to do that is to make sure that everybody gets the same care. Do you think Americans are, are there in believing that healthcare is a right? Like one of the things I went with Senator Sanders to Toronto last year. And I think one of the things that struck me is it just Canadians, maybe because of their healthcare system or they just believe that everyone deserves healthcare and they're okay for like non-urgent things, waiting in line a little bit. Do you think Americans are there? Like, it seems like we might be more divided on whether or not. I don't think we're divided at all. I think we are there. I don't know that I would have said that five years ago, but I think we are there now for all the reasons I mentioned. And I think that insurance companies, industry front groups that, you know, have their own polling places and, and build their coalitions with very nice sounding names, um, are trying to have people believe that they're going to lose something if they stand up for this basic human right. But, I will tell you, Republicans and Democrats and independents, both in the polling, but also the ones who come up and talk to me. I mean, it's interesting, you know, I have some Republican small business owners who will say to me, I don't agree with you on a lot of other things, but can you just go get that Medicare for all bill done? Because think about this, the burden we put on creativity and innovation in this country, on small business owners who have to come up with insurance for their employees if they want to try and be competitive. They've got to search for some plan that's going to serve five or 10 employees, which is going to be really, really expensive for them. Um, and they say, listen, I'd be willing to pay into the system if you just provide it. And I know people are taken care of because actually I think a lot of 
of small business owners in particular are community-based businesses. They do care about the people that work for them. They do see that everyone should have health care. So I think everyone is there. And now we just have to fight the hundreds of millions of dollars that I am sure will come in trying to put fear into every American about what they're going to lose and how terrible this is and how much it's going to cost. Well, I got news. 18% of GDP is what we spend on healthcare right now, double most major countries in the world. And when you're paying $10,000 out of pocket, $35,000, one guy, one of my constituents, HIV positive, has to work for a company because his HIV meds cost $5,000 a month. I mean, this is a story after story and people who have literally died because they couldn't get care. So if we want to talk about, you know, what we have to do, we've got to talk about the human cost and the economic cost of the system that we have that only benefits the very few. One other area I wanted to touch in is transitioning to a system like this. You envision a two-year transition, which I believe is faster than Sanders' four-year transition. How do you, this is a, a lot to get done in two years. Yes. Um, how do you envision moving? And what, I guess maybe to back up, why is that faster transition important yeah. to you? Um, yeah, this was another area where we looked very carefully. John Conyers 676 was actually a one year transition. Oh. Um, and Senator Sanders had a four year transition and a very good Perry study that Bob Polin and others put out on Senator Sanders bill sort of goes into this. But the problem is if you take too long to transition, then you have a marketplace that knows it's not going to continue. Um, and therefore can hike up prices even more in the interim because it's sort of operating as a bridge, right? And so we think that having too long of a transition is actually really detrimental for most Americans. And and the, the reality is we already have Medicare and Medicaid. So, you know, a lot of people are already in the system. The systems have to be merged. So year one of our plan is merging all of the systems, setting up the administration to bring in new people. Employers are already tracking who they have. And so it's not going to be, you know, so that's another piece. And then we would have to have, you know, a whole series of things that would be done at point of contact, various points of contact where people automatically get insured, um, a, a number of things like that. So that's year one. Year two is we're going to just try out those administrative systems by just increasing the numbers slightly. So we would have 55 and over would be covered, 18 and under would be covered. So that's year two. We're sure all the kinks are worked out. Beginning of year three, everyone's covered. That feels very optimistic to me, mostly just from my experience covering the Affordable Care Act and healthcare.gov. I'm sure you remember when healthcare.gov launched, it didn't really work, and they had had a four-year window. But see, what healthcare.gov did is they didn't combine everything. I mean, they still had multiple plans out there. They still had all kinds of different insurance plans. Every state had different procedures. Every insurance, uh, you know, body had to be set up. These separate insurance commissions in different states had to be set up. I mean, there were so many things that the Affordable Care Act was incredible, um, in expanding access for tens of millions of Americans that cannot go unsaid enough uh, or cannot be said enough, but the reality is it didn't take on that broken marketplace. You don't achieve the efficiencies. You don't achieve sort of the speed of transition unless you're willing to push those things out and really have everything come to one point of contact. 
Tell me a little bit about what you're expecting in terms of the fight over this. I think I saw you tweeting about the New York Times article that there's now this, I forget what their name is, but a very nicely named coalition of folks who are gearing up to oppose this bill that you're rolling out. What what are you preparing for there? And how do you do, you know, better than people who've tried to fight this and, you know, not been able to win? I think we are ready. I think Americans are ready to stand up for something that is a basic human right. And I think there are tens of millions of Americans across this country who want to take on this fight, who want to see us take on this fight. I think many of my colleagues are ready to take on this fight. We know that we don't have as as much money as these companies, but I would just say to every American, every time you see a poll, ask who is funding that poll. Every time you see, you know, some sort of question come out, uh, ask if it's really true what, what people are saying. And let's push back over and over and over again. So we are setting up a, an unprecedented coalition this time. Um, obviously we have the presidential candidates and the presidential campaigns and, you know, multiple presidential campaigns have endorsed this idea. And so we will have a different a whole different platform, again, to take us to the next level. It is past time for this. And it is offensive to me when these industries who are profiting so much on people's health care would put at this point, you know, sometimes up to half a million dollars into each member of Congress. If you were to average it out, that's how much these, these drug companies from 2015 and the first half of 2016, they spent $2 billion on lobbying. That's about a half a million dollars for each member of Congress. I don't take corporate PAC money, so I'm leading this bill and I'm happy to just say, no, no corporate PAC money. Let's do what's right for the American people. And I believe that will happen. And anybody who says it's too ambitious, it's too bold, I would just say, what policy in the history of this country, from ending slavery to getting the right for women to vote to sending somebody to the moon, has ever been built on some small nibble around the edges idea. It has been built on a core moral value, a core idea of who we are as Americans, and that's what's going to allow us to fight for this. We've just heard clips today, starting with The Michael Brooks Show, laying out the history of how Medicare for All was smothered in the cradle and never fully recovered. The Zero Hour discussed the broken, immoral economics of for-profit health insurance. The Katie Halper Show made the feminist argument for Medicare for All. Democracy Now! spoke with Pramila Jayapal about the announcement of her Medicare for All bill. Counterspin spoke with Diane Archer about the costs, benefits, and opposition to Medicare for All. The Majority Report warned about the Obama and Clinton alumni being hired to fight against Medicare for All. And finally, we just heard Pramila Jayapal again interviewed, this time on The Ezra Klein Show, about the core principle of equality of care, the role of private companies in her plan, the broad support that Medicare for All already enjoys, and the fight ahead we need to be ready for. Members will be getting a bonus 
bonus episode with more from Pramila Jayapal on what she's fighting for, Bernie Sanders debunking some of the false claims already coming out against Medicare for All, and a description of how healthcare connects to our last topic, the power of monopolies. To hear all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the $6 level. Though if that's too steep for you, consider getting the show ad-free for only 2 bucks a month, and remember that our weekly poll to help choose the topics we cover each week is free to everyone. You can simply follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved, and take part in the poll each weekend. Visit patreon.com slash bestofleft for all the details. Of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. And now, we'll hear from you. We're continuing our discussion about identity and politics in the wake of Caller Grant saying that identity was far more important than policies when it comes to him picking a candidate to support. Today, all three of the callers touch on one central theme, and I'll be discussing that afterwards, so see if you can pick out what that theme is. Hi, Jay. Uh, This is Mike. I'm calling from St. Petersburg, Florida, and I just listened to uh, Grant's voicemail talking about uh, voting for identity politics, I guess. It was interesting because his statement seemed to go in one direction, and then it did a complete 180 uh, near the end. The first part of the message, it seemed like he was sort of limiting his scope as far as, you know, identity politics. Uh, The fact that race does have to be a factor in it, that's true. Because, you know, I mean, living in an idealized world, race would never be a problem. Everyone would be equal, but that's not the case. So picking two people with equal qualifications, but then saying, you know, or close to equal uh, qualifications, but then saying, you know, the better message here would actually be to get the minority individual into office. It's going to send a much better message. It's going to benefit society, I think, as a whole more. Because the more minorities are allowed to participate in society, I think it benefits anyone uh, or everyone, excuse me. And then as far as him coming down on you on racism, you know, unfortunately, that's part of the real world. That's part of the considerations we have to have. And, you know, I hate to say it, but Grant really sounded like an extreme racism near the end there, saying that the first thing he's going to do is see a person of color and say, "Okay, that's my guy. You know, unfortunately, that's racism. Racism doesn't have to be this horrible thing. Unfortunately, it is in our world. But I mean, that's a that's a pretty blatant example of racism. Anyway, thanks for listening. Great show as always. Thanks, Jake. Hi, Jay. This is Holly. I am from San Francisco and I am a medium time listener, first time caller. Um, I just listened to the very long message from the person named Grant who annoyed me quite a bit, made me very upset, not because I'm racist. I think actually he sounded pretty racist to me when he said that voting for a person of color is so important. It is such a political act that he would even consider voting for a misogynist and someone who's bombing like crazy. Well, Obama did bomb. Obama is responsible for the death of many, many hundreds, if not thousands of civilians. So I don't feel like I did vote for Obama the first time, but I didn't the second. And I don't really feel like, you know, I'm glad we had a black president, but I do not think that is what matters above all else. I think that what matters is someone who has really good policies, 
and who really is going to do well for the country and who is able to do well for the country. Um, unfortunately, I think right now the minority candidates who declared, I don't know that any of them meet my standard for what they will be able to do. I am, I do like Bernie and I like Warren to some extent and I, I like some of the others a little bit, but I just, my heart is beating very fast because I thought it was actually offensive at first when Grant said that you screwed up. You you made a mistake, Jay. You were wrong. I mean, right there, that should be our evidence that this person has a perspective that is not really very reasonable, in my opinion. I just think that, I yes, I would love to vote for a black woman or an Asian woman or a you know, a trans person, but if they're going to bomb people and be a misogynist or a racist or whatever, I'm not going for it no matter what. I'm going to go for the white guy if that's the case, if they are a really good person. Anyway, that's one really just upset me a lot. Thank you for what you do. Bye. Hey, Jay, this is Chris calling from Utah. I've been listening to your show years and I uh, I really like your perspective and think you have a lot of thought-provoking podcasts and uh, I think you're doing a great service. I'm calling in response to your question about identity and politics and preference. First, I'd like to say that I'm finding myself in the last year or so as a uh, you know straight white male, you know, where I considered myself about as liberal as anybody that I knew. I mean, I grew up in Berkeley. I moved to Utah 10 years ago. You know, something's been changing in the culture and or in me. And, you know, you hear these things about maybe people become conservative when they get older, or maybe it's vice versa. You know, and I don't, I don't know what's fully causing this change. I fully believe that colonialism and imperialism and structural racism are all causes for lots of problems we see all over the world and all over our country in the United States. However, I just can't get to this place where identity is so important. I mean, I could say maybe I would, I would like to see a more diverse cohort in Congress, in representation you know, all things being equal, but they're not, right? So it is really just a philosophical question. What percent, right? I mean, all things can't ever be equal. So a couple percent maybe, right? But policies are what's really important. And these ideas that, you know, if we elect more women or more minorities or more religious folks or whatever the case may be, that somehow that's going to solve a problem is a joke and just makes us feel better. It doesn't solve a problem. You know, I mean, maybe it does, and I just, you know, can't make the, the connection. But I haven't heard anybody make an argument about why, in and of itself, that is important. And I find it incredibly problematic because, philosophically, there really is no difference between that and the, what the alt-right and the white nationalists are saying. I mean, there is a power dynamic difference, but... To show a preference based strictly on identity is completely undefensible as far as I'm concerned. But I am concerned about racism and sexism and access and equality and all these other issues. It's just when that's the sole focus, it gives credence to a lot of extremists on the other side. And, uh, you know, I just don't think it solves any problems. So, uh, anyways, I should have written it out and tried to be more concise, but... That's my, my two cents for now. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, just to clarify, lest anyone think I'm playing messages like this to pile on to Grant, that he and I disagreed and it seems like 95% of people agree with me. Look, that that is not the point. I'm not piling on. I am only continuing to play messages like this as long as we can learn something from them. I I think people have made their point and and that discussion could generally be put to bed, but uh, I think that we can learn something from these messages. As I said, there's a theme running through the three voicemails we just heard. I, I wonder if anyone thought of what it was. So the first two, Mike and Holly, both actually went as far as to say that, no, it's Grant who's being racist. And Chris didn't say anything like that. He's talking about the same basic topic. And and his essential point is he doesn't see the point. He he can't make the connection of why looking at race uh, or gender or, or identity in general is beneficial to almost any degree, maybe a few percent, but other than that, no. And the connection, the theme that runs through all of these is the dynamic of power, which interestingly, Chris even mentioned, uh, but didn't actually make the connection himself. So uh, first, let's tackle Mike and Holly, who both use the term racism, talking about Grant, saying that to to do essentially the opposite of what a white supremacist would do is itself racist. It's just racist in the other direction. And I do not agree with that. I, I would never say that what Grant is doing is racist, though I understand nearly 100% of conservatives would agree. And they would say, yes, that is racism. And a lot of people on the left would also agree because they were taught the same definition of racism I was growing up. White people are taught that racism is, ironically, it's sort of colorblind. Anyone can be racist. Racism is seeing, judging, identifying, acting in any way based on race is racism. That is essentially the definition according to white people. I am here to let you know something that I was taught years ago because a couple of nice people of color uh, decided to uh, educate me. That is not the only definition that exists in this country. A lot of people disagree with that, and I have come to agree with this new definition because I think it's better. So the new definition is often described as prejudice plus power equals racism. You have to have the element of power in order for the racism to really be racism. And so here we're talking about what Grant is doing is essentially the opposite of a white supremacist. A white supremacist would only ever vote for a white person, no matter their policies. And Grant says, I would only vote for a person of color regardless of their policies. So it's like this mirror image. So you think, okay, if one's racist, the other is too, right? But the power dynamic is completely different. The power dynamic is inverted and that does not make it a mirror image. So to to demonstrate this with a little story or example, uh, let's say there's a white person who wants to very consciously only shop at white-owned businesses. I think the vast majority of people, nearly 100%, would say that's racist. Essentially, that is a white supremacist who is looking to 
assert the power and privilege of whiteness. Now, a black person who says to themselves, it is my value to shop at black-owned businesses. Now, again, a lot of people would say, well, that's racist. I would not say that's racist. And the reason is because the power dynamic is inverted. A black person looking to shop at black-owned businesses is looking to subvert the prevailing power structure and counterbalance the structural racism that disadvantages black business owners. Whereas a white person looking to shop at white-owned businesses is looking to prop up people who already have more power than a, a similarly situated business owner who is a person of color. That is not a mirror image. Racism does not play out the same in, in both directions. So it is for that reason that I agree that for racism to truly be racism, it must include power. And, and look, there's a, de a debate about the definition, and I am not going to go around telling you that if you want to hold on to the old definition, which, by the way, is in the dictionary, if you want to look it up, you could say, look, Jay is totally wrong. It says right here in the dictionary. Fine. What I'm here to tell you is not everyone agrees with that. A lot of people have a different definition, and frankly, I think it's a better definition. So I'm not going to tell you you're wrong and you have to change. But what you do have to do is recognize that there is more than one definition, and sometimes people are going to use that other definition. And frankly, using that other definition is a more thoughtful, a more historically based, a more nuanced understanding of racism that makes a hell of a lot more sense. Because an unthoughtful, uncritical idea of racism that doesn't include power dynamics is ultimately pretty much useless. Like, if you think what Grant is doing and what a white supremacist is doing is the same, then obviously the definition of that word isn't really doing anyone any good. It, it, it flattens the discussion. It makes people start saying that, you know, caring about race in either direction is the same. Uh, ultimately, an otherwise non-hateful person with this understanding of racism might even, maybe on, on the extremes, but they might even begin to think that there's some merit to that idea that there were good people on both sides in Charlottesville. Now, I mean, to be clear, I don't think there's any danger of anyone I'm having a conversation with on this show falling into that way of thinking. But you, but you see where that that way of thinking leads you, the, this flattening, this leveling, and that any talk of race, any, uh, any discussion of race without the element of power can ultimately lead people to perpetuate this incomplete notion of racism, and that makes it harder to overcome. So that's why I advocate the use of this. Well, it, it's both newer and older. The, the people who explained it to me said, this is actually the original definition. The original definition included the concept of power, and it had been whitewashed afterward to essentially to level the playing field and make racism harder to overcome. Okay, so now moving on, Chris... He is so close to being right. I feel like he's got all the pieces, but he's not sure how they fit together, or he's missing just one little connector bit. And I think that connector is power dynamics, which, as I said, he mentioned. So on the policy side, we'll, we'll, we'll take uh, identity for candidates on both the policy and the social side. Now, he's, he's saying essentially he's pitting identity against policy. 
which is fair. I mean, that's how this discussion has mostly been framed, because I think that's mostly true. It's almost entirely true. But it's it's not. It's not entirely true. So a, a person of color, a woman, some member of some marginalized or oppressed community is going to have different insights, different perspectives, basically a different filter through which they see the world. And that is something that you cannot get if you're from the the majority, the privileged group. And that is fundamentally positive to how policy is constructed. If the people helping make it have new and more insights. So you can, you can enter a discussion having the same policy goals, but two people from two different backgrounds, one may see more pitfalls. They may see more sort of invisible concerns that a straight white guy would never see, would never think about. And so I would say the best, the best a straight white guy could do if you're elected to office is you have to surround yourself with advisors who are members of marginalized communities so they, they can constantly give you advice to make your decision-making as clear thinking and, and uh, so that you can see issues from as many different lenses as possible. So that's what you would have to do. So I, I would say that just electing someone from an oppressed community who, who gets these extra insights or has these other lenses through which they can see the world is fundamentally beneficial for that reason. But it's not the only thing. Like, if they see the world through a different lens and then they conclude that they want a bunch of terrible policies, obviously that's not good enough. So then we move on to the social side. And this is where I think there is an enormous amount of weight. This is what I was referring to. I didn't go into detail before. But when I started this conversation, I said, essentially, there are huge social benefits to having varied representation in places of power. And, and so that's what I want to get to. So rather than I, as a straight white guy, trying to explain the benefits of having marginalized people in places of power, uh, I just have a few clips for you. So just so happens that last night I watched uh, John Leguizamo's, it's, it's not exactly a comedy special, it's a one-man show. Uh, it's called Latin History for Morons. And it's on Netflix. And so I just have a couple of clips that sort of get to the heart of describing what it's like to go through life without having your identity represented outside of yourself in places of power or maybe anywhere at all. So th this first one, he's describing Latin history and how we know more about the ancient civilizations of Native America, North, South, and Central than we know about the thousands of years between the ancient civilizations and now. But yo, what happened in the 3,000 years between our great indigenous civilizations and us? How did we become so goddamn non-existent? Because if you don't see yourself represented outside of yourself, you just feel fucking invisible. So, yo, I had good reason to panic because as the great 20th century Spanish philosopher Santana once said, <laughs> oh, no, 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 not Carlos, George, George, <laughs> who said, those who cannot remember their past are doomed to repeat it, coño. 
And one more, he's describing a scene in his therapist's office as his therapist has just suggested they do a little word association. How about proper nouns? How about, let's try proper nouns, okay? Here we go again. Uh, success. Oh, 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 um, Mark Zuckerberg. Genius. Oh, that's a hard one, man. That's a tough fucking, um, Steve Jobs? Legend. Uh, uh, Billy Joel? But John, what, what, what about Mark Anthony? Yeah. yeah. John, what about solo performers? Oh, dude, it's got to be Spalding Gray. He's the godfather. But John, John, do you see the pattern here, John? Oh, shit, Doc, you're right, you're right. I'm brainwashed. No, worse, I'm whitewashed. I can't believe they got me, man. I can't believe they got me in my own mind in my deepest places. They got me believing that white people are better than me. Fuck, where the, where the fuck did that shit come from? John, other than history, textbooks, movies, television, and newspapers, I really don't know. And now I just have one last one. This is from deep in my own archives. This is from Election Day 2008. So I think we know the big event that happened just then. And someone went down uh, to the streets of Washington, D.C. and recorded people's initial reactions. I cannot tell my children that anything is possible. No matter who you are, what color you are, if you want to be, you can be the president of the United States and be a world leader. Not only does he share all my values, but he's the first African-American president the U.S. has had. It's just the best of the best. My, my name is Hussein. My first name is Hussein. Yes, we can. I'm from East Africa. And I love America for doing this. Oh my God. Thank you, America. Thank you, America. Did you see? He is one. Thank God. Thank you, Jesus. All the days that my grandmother did day's work and when my great-grandfather was um, when the KKK came in in 1954 and took him from his house and my great-grandmother didn't know where he was going, all of that means something. Everything that they fought for, the rights for me to go to school, the rights for me to vote, the rights for me to go to college, it means that it's not just possible for me, but for my son and for the world. For the world. For the world. It's okay, Mommy. and told to sit behind the wood and you just don't know what this means. Okay. I, I worked so hard to see a day like this. So in that clip, the most important phrase I heard is the one just near the end. You just don't know what this means. And that is absolutely right. That woman, when she says that, she's talking to people like me. She's talking to people like Chris saying, you don't know what this means, and she's right. I, I might have some vague, intellectual, conceptual understanding of what's going on, but ultimately, I do not know what this means to a person like that. And I know what Chris said in his message, that ultimately, it, it just makes us feel good. And he could argue, I have no idea what he might actually say, but what he could argue, what someone could argue, is that those clips are just people feeling good. Of course it feels good. I don't even hold it against them that it feels good, but it doesn't do anything real. And so even though 
I don't know what this means to someone like that. I can try to explain on an intellectual level what it means more concretely. White supremacy is not something that just needs to be expunged from the minds of white people. White supremacy exists for everyone. Patriarchy exists for everyone. As we heard John Leguizamo talking about, he's been tricked into thinking that white people are superior too. All of his heroes are are white people. All of the, the you know the successful people that come to mind immediately are white people. That's white supremacy. So seeing members of non-dominant groups represented in powerful roles does more than make us feel good. It does more than just send the signal that everyone could get to that point. It fundamentally, genuinely, actually changes people's lives. It changes the way people see the world. It allows people to sometimes see themselves represented in a position of power and opens doors in people's minds. I mean, so many of the doors that people think are closed to them are just closed in their own minds. They could succeed, they could achieve that, but they don't think they could. And the reason for that is structural oppression that convinces people that's not for you. And for straight white guys like me and Chris, we have none of those doors closed to us. I mean, they might be closed for financial reasons or skills-based reasons, but we, it would never occur to us to think like, well, I can't do that because my kind of people don't do that kind of thing. There, there's like no job I can think of that is is a prestigious job that you know the, the general population could go for that I would ever think to myself like, well, my kind of people just don't do that sort of thing. Like that kind of idea never crosses my mind. And it's because there is no lack of representation of straight white guys in every facet of society. I have never been taught through media, newspapers, politics, television, movies, anything, history books that People like me don't do things like X. People like me do whatever the fuck we want, which means I can do whatever the fuck I want. But not everyone grows up having that kind of perspective, having representations of themselves on display to let children who can't think about it intellectually, but can allow them to internalize hey, that's a person like me doing a thing that looks exciting. I could do that when I grow up. So when I say that there are concrete benefits to society for having a diverse representation in our positions of power, that's what I mean. And it is certainly not just about making people feel good. It is about breaking the back of oppressive systems like white supremacy and patriarchy. That's what it's about. Because the only way to change those systems is to change people's minds, change the way they see the world, the way they see themselves. And one of the best ways to do that is through diverse representation throughout all of society, pop culture, history books, politics, etc. So, Chris, you mentioned, you know, there, there's like a similarity, but it's giving credence to what white supremacists think. They think identity is really important, but we shouldn't think that way because we don't want to give credence to those ideas. And then you mentioned, well, I mean, I guess there is a little bit of a power dynamic uh, difference. But other than that, no, 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 there is no but other than that. The power dynamic is at the core of this conversation. That is the most important thing we are trying to change. And that is what diverse representation for the sake of diverse representation 
is for. It is to help bend the curve of that power dynamic. And that is why white guys are so scared out of their fucking minds that they would vote for someone like Donald Trump. Basically, it means we're winning. We are succeeding. The power dynamic is changing. It is going to continue to change. We're going to continue to push for it to change. And they are going to continue to double down and double down and try to maintain their power, try to reassert and reestablish their power and their privilege. And so it's going to be a fight, but ultimately we're going to win. That's the plan anyway. If you have thoughts on this or anything else, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com